We're in Genesis, the 14th chapter, so let's open there. And I'm going to read to you the 14th chapter of Genesis. We're going through Genesis, and the point of, not just going through Genesis, but the point of all the Scripture, there's only one reason God gave us the Scripture, and that one reason is Christ. There's only one thing God wants us to see in the Scripture, and that one thing that God wants us to see in the Scripture is Christ. That's it. Now, that has far and wide implications, right? To see Christ in our heart, to see Christ by faith, to know a measure of Christ in our soul, in our heart, in our mind, by the Spirit of God, has implications in all areas of our, of our lives. It has implications as uh, husbands and wives, as parents, as employers, as employees, as citizens. It has implications in every way we can imagine. But the point of the Scripture is not given so that we can just be better people. The point of the Scripture is given so that we will see Jesus. And where do we see Jesus? Starting in Matthew and the Gospels? Is that when the Bible begins talking about Jesus? No. From the very beginning... From the very first word of Genesis to the very last word of Revelation, everything in between, the point of the Scripture is to reveal Christ to us. And Christ is revealed on every page and every verse of Scripture because He is the Word. He is the living Word. And so this is how we read the Bible. This is how we preach and teach the Scripture is to... Trust that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, would give to us a revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's read Genesis 14 with that in mind. Verse 1, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Cherdelonir, king of Elam, and title, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimber, king of Zebolam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnam, the Zuzim in Ham, and Imam in Shevat, Kirshalam, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, and as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mispat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hezazon, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, 
Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshgal, and the brother of Anir, and they were all, I'm sorry, and they were, they were always, I'm sorry, they were allies. My wife keeps telling me I need to wear my glasses, and maybe, maybe she's right. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, the arm, he armed his 318 trained servants and were bo- that were born into his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his bro- brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave, that is Abraham, gave a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only that the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Anner, Eshgal, and Mamre, Let them take their portion. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts and open our minds and reveal Christ through this word. That God, we would not hear the words of men. We would not, Lord, look for just worldly wisdom. But God, we would trust that you would, by the power of your spirit, open our eyes and open our ears to see Jesus on the pages of your holy scripture. And Lord, that revelation of Christ would change us and transform us, that it would indeed conform us to the very image of the Son of God. We thank you for this, Lord. And we pray that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are, Genesis 14. We're going to divide this chapter up in two sections, and we're going to look at this. Um, The first section runs through verses 16. And then the last section, verses 17 through 24, we're going to look at. And we're going to see how does this communicate the gospel? How does this reveal Christ? How does this speak to our salvation? 
Now, as we've looked at Abram, starting here in Genesis 12, uh, well, really coming back uh, from that with the genealogies and, and everything from Genesis 11 leading into to Genesis 12, we've looked at Abraham's life. Uh, right now, he's still called Abram. We're getting, we're getting ready to come to the place where God's going to change his name, and he's going to be called Abraham. So when you hear me say Abram, just know that we're talking about the same guy. Abram is Abraham. But God changed his name. We're not to that point in the scripture yet, but we're going to get there. So just don't get confused when I talk about Abram. I'm staying consistent with the story here as we follow along with scripture. And so at this point, we see Abram brought to our attention in the word of God. And we see that Abram foreshadows our salvation in the work of Christ. How did he do that? So we see that God called Abram from the land of his fathers, Ur of the Chaldees, and he brings him all the way from Ur up to Haran and then down 500 miles to the land of Canaan or the promised land. And we see that God called Abram to leave behind his country, to leave behind everything. How does that picture our salvation? This is exactly what God does when he calls us out of this world and into Christ, when we are called out of death and into life, when we're called out of darkness and into light, that's what we call the new birth or being born again. When we make that journey from death to life in Christ, it's an exodus. And that exodus, and in that exodus, we leave everything behind. And this is how Abram pictures our salvation. And how does that happen? It happens through our death. It happens through us being baptized into the death of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So, when we are born again, this is the language Jesus uses in John 3, 3. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Both of these scriptures, the words of Jesus and the words of Paul, this pictures an exodus. We experience a death and we leave everything behind and we come into a new life. And we spend the rest of eternity growing in our comprehension of this new because when we're born again, when we come out of the old and into the new, all we have comprehension of is the old. And so God has graciously given us His Word. God has graciously given us His Spirit. He's put His Spirit in us. This is how Christ dwells in us. And now that Christ dwells in us by the Spirit, God is renewing our mind through the power of the Holy Spirit, using the Scripture using everything in and around our lives to give us comprehension now of the new, renewing our mind from the old to the new. So we see this, remember, with Noah. Noah lived on an earth for hundreds of years, right? <laughs> and then a flood comes. And when Noah leaves the ark a year later, he's on a new, he's on a new world, really. He's got centuries of comprehending and knowing the old and now he walks into a new and now he's going to spend the rest the 350 years that are left of his life 
he's going to spend them renewing his mind to this new creation, this new world, post-flood world. Abram grew up in the land of the Chaldees. He leaves, he comes to a new land. Now he is being renewed in his mind to this new land. And who's doing this? God is doing this. And we're going to look at these experiences that God takes Abram through, eventually coming to be called Abraham. And this is the work God is doing. And why did God create Abraham? And why did God give us Abraham in the Scripture? Because God wants us to understand that he is doing the same thing in us that he was doing in Abraham, that he was doing in Noah. He is bringing us to a revelation of Christ. And we'll see this especially later on, and the New Testament gives us commentary on this. We know that Abraham saw Christ because John 8, Jesus said he did. Jesus said, Abraham saw me. He saw my day. Hebrews chapter 11 says Abraham saw, he had such a revelation of Christ that he wouldn't even live in a city because he had seen the city whose builder and maker was God. So this is Abram. This is the man that we're talking about here. And so remember, we just left this part in chapter 13 where Abram tells his nephew Lot, he said, look, we've got too many animals and our our workers aren't getting along together. Look, we've got a whole land here. You take whatever land you want and whatever you don't choose, I'll take. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. So he let Lot choose and Lot chose the plain of Sodom because it was green and well watered before God rained fire and brimstone down on it. And so Lot leaves. And Abram's going to take what Lot didn't take. And God says, oh, wait a minute, Abram, let me just tell you this. Lot chose for himself, but I've chosen for you. I want you to look north, south, east, and west as far as you can see. This is yours. See, Lot only thought. And so what did we say last week? We said it's always better to let God choose because God always chooses better than we do. And so this is Abram. Now, he's living in his land. He's minding his own business, and these kings decide they're going to have a war. And, and, and in the midst of this war, we have collateral damage. Lot is the collateral damage. So Lot is taken. Lot's family, Lot's people, they're all taken, kidnapped by these kings, and carried off. Someone comes to Abram and says, Hey, Abram, your nephew Lot, notice that Abram refers to Lot as his brother. Twice, he's referred to Abram's brother. It wasn't literally his brother, it was his nephew. It was his brother's son, but he calls Lot his brother. I'm going to go get my brother. My brother has been taken. And so these kings have this war, and Abram goes and he rescues Lot. And so we see Abram as a type of Christ in that he pursues and defeats the enemy to bring back Lot, to bring back this one he calls his brother and the people with him. So here we have again this picture of salvation coming through one man. We saw it in Noah, we see it again in Abraham here, or in Abram. The plan of our salvation was never, listen, was never to wait and see if we would be able to overpower our enemy or find a way of escape and work our way back to God. The plan of our salvation has eternally been Christ and Christ crucified, period. 
God was not patiently waiting in heaven to wait and see whether man was going to finally get his act together to see if we were going to figure it out. And when he finally figured out that we couldn't figure it out, he said, well, I guess I better step in and go do something. That is not. Please, church, don't believe that. That is not what happened. God had a plan before time and space were ever created. God has an eternal plan, which means his plan has no beginning and his plan has no end because that's what eternal means. Eternity has no beginning and has no end. God has an eternal plan. And God's plan of salvation was always Christ and Christ crucified. The eternal purpose of God was that all things would be created by, for, and through Christ. Colossians 1.16 says that exactly. That all things were created by Him, for Him, and through Him. And that Christ would come to His creation, defeat His enemies, and bring all that the Father had given to Him back to glory. Hebrews 2. Let's turn over there. Hebrews chapter 2. Hold your place in Genesis. Let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 2 toward the back of your Bible. We're going to go from the front of your Bible to the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read uh, starting in verse 10. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him. Uh, let me let me start in verse. Uh, let me start in verse eight because I love verse eight, and I think we need to be reminded of this. Verse eight says, "You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him." But now we do not yet see all things put under him but we see Jesus. That's something that we should pay very close attention to. All things have been put in subjection under Christ. Whether you see it or not, whether you believe it or not, it really doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It matters for you, but it doesn't matter in the eternal scheme of things because all things are put in subjection to Him. We talked about this in our, our, uh, we're on our next to the last video uh, on our Sunday morning Bible study at 9. And we talked about this. That we read the scripture and we see things uh, in the world and we think, man, it doesn't look like God's in control. It doesn't look like God is reigning and ruling. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. They weren't ignorant of what was happening in the world. There was persecution happening then just like there's persecution happening now. Some were being persecuted, some weren't being persecuted. At that time, most of the Christians that lived on planet Earth were being persecuted for their faith. And so he's saying, in that he's put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now, but now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. But we see Jesus. So if you see Jesus, and this is the point of studying the Scripture, that you would see Jesus. If you see Jesus, then you know 
all things have been put under him. If you see Jesus, don't worry about what Fox News says or ABC News says or any newspaper or magazine headline that you might be stressing out over. It's good to be informed. It's good to know what's going on. We need to know how to pray. We need to be aware of the signs of the times, but not so that we become afraid. You look at your bank account and you say, man, it doesn't look like God's in control of my bank account. Well, maybe he's not. Maybe, maybe you are, and maybe you need to let him be in control of it, right? <laughs> but know this. This is what the Scripture This is not what Pastor Jeff says. This is what the Scripture says. Know this, that all things have been put under subjection under his feet even though you can't see it. And I know for many people, seeing is believing, but remember we talked about this, seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. You need to see Jesus and then believe what the Scripture declares. You need to see Jesus and believe that God is in control. Not what the media and the world and the powers that be want you to believe. They want you to believe someone or something else is in control. No, believe God is in control because that's what the Scripture declares. And trust Him in the midst of that. Verse 10, i got to hurry here. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. That's Christ. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. In bringing Many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You see that? Abram called Lot his brother. Jesus calls us his brethren. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me, inasmuch as then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Don't fear death. Christ has already overcome death. We have no reason to fear death. Verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed, to the sons of Abraham. You are the seed of Abraham. If you are in Christ, Paul writes in Galatians, he has given aid to you. He has put all things into subjection under his feet. He rules supreme. Whether you can see it, whether you want to believe it or not, see Jesus and trust what the Scripture declares. This is the picture we see with Abram going into the enemy's camp to take back his brethren. This is what Jesus did. He came into the territory of his enemies to take his brethren back to glory. This is a picture of our salvation. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what's pictured when we see Abram going to rescue Lot. 
Now, let's get to verse 17, and let's finish this chapter. So then he comes back, having rescued Lot and the women and the people, it says in verse 16. And it says in verse 17 that they come to the valley of kings, and then... Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He, Melchizedek, was the priest of God most high. Now, this is Abram. Isaac hasn't been born yet. Jacob hasn't been born yet. Levi hasn't been born yet. There is no Levitical priesthood. There is Abram, and there is this man, who is called Melchizedek. And Abram comes back from defeating his enemies, rescuing his brother and and their people, and he meets Melchizedek in the Valley of Kings, and it says that Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And here is what Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. How did Abram beat those bad guys? Because God delivered them into his hand. And do you know why Abram comes and he meets Melchizedek in the Valley of Kings and the first thing he does is offer a tithe to God? Because Abram knew why his enemies were delivered into his hand because he knew God did it. And he was worshiping God and acknowledging God by giving a tithe to Melchizedek. He gave it to God through the hands of Melchizedek. And so here's something that we need to understand. So who is this Melchizedek? He, he was a man. And, and it's talks about him also in the book of Hebrews. Well, why does the Bible picture this man called Melchizedek? Here's something that we need to understand. Everything, everything that came out from God in a natural expression points back to the spiritual reality from which it came. So what John's gospel, for instance, tells us that everything that was created was created from nothing, and nothing that was created was created apart from Christ and His Word. So God said, and there it was. There wasn't a big ball of kids, listen to me. Now this may be contrary to what your teachers teach you. There wasn't a big ball of dust somewhere that God found floating around in the universe and he decided to just make everything out of it. In eternity, there was God. And in God, there was no lack. There was no loneliness in God. God didn't feel compelled to create man because he was lonely. Please don't believe that lie either. There was God, and God is sufficient in himself. He didn't lack anything. Then why did God create the universe? Why did God create us? It's called grace. It's called love. 
And so from nothing, God spoke everything into existence. And everything that was spoken into, an ex- into existence is an expression in the natural. It, it just gives us a natural expression of spiritual reality. So it's kind of funny. The Bible says that all of this around us, all this natural stuff around us is going to pass away one day. Well, what's going to happen? Is everything going to become invisible? No, that's not what that means. Spiritual doesn't mean invisible. Spiritual means it's not natural. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and he had a natural body. But when he was crucified and buried and resurrected, he was resurrected in a spiritual body. He could walk through walls. You try that. See how well that works out for you. It won't. Because we don't have spiritual bodies, we have natural bodies. The fact that Jesus was resurrected with a spiritual body teaches us, and this is what the Bible says, he was the first fruits. One day we will be physically resurrected and given a spiritual body. But what I want you to understand right now is you have already been resurrected, you have already been raised in Christ spiritually. I have been crucified with Christ. Let me quote it to you again. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul wasn't speaking of something that was going to happen one day. He was speaking of a reality in his life then. When he writes in Ephesians 2, we are seated with him in heavenly places. He's not talking about what's going to happen one day. He's talking about what's reality now. The reason we're going to be raised one day physically is because we've already been raised in Christ. And so when God spoke everything into existence, he brought from one a natural expression of everything. And that natural expression of everything, this is why Psalm, uh, the psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. There are real stars, real galaxies floating around out there. I love looking at the sky at night. I love looking at the moon. I love looking at those things. And the Bible says they declare the glory of God. Those are natural expressions. Those are real objects. But they declare to us, they speak of something eternal. It's not that they themselves are eternal, they speak of what's eternal. You, whether you realize it or not, you speak of what is eternal. And so the eternal purpose of God was that all things would be created by and for and through Christ, and that Christ would come to this creation of His. He would defeat His enemies, and He would bring His children that the Father had given to Him. He would bring them back to glory. And when Melchizedek is shown uh, to come on the scene here, we see that the Bible describes him in very strange ways. So let's look at this. Let's look at... um, Let's look at this, verse 16. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. I want you to note that. He brought out bread and wine. And then he proclaims a blessing. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high. God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Do you see what Melchizedek is proclaiming there? The sovereign God over all. 
And blessed be God, most high. He doesn't just bless Abram. He is declaring God is blessed. God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. When Jesus was dying on the cross, it didn't look like God the Father was delivering the enemies of Jesus into his hand. Matter of fact, his disciples who were there watching it all unfold became very frightened and ran and hid for their lives because they thought for sure they were going to be next. Because Jesus dying bloody on the cross, beaten unrecognizable in human terms, just didn't look like victory. It looked like utter and complete defeat. But yet, the eternal plan and purpose of God unfolded to absolute perfection. It it looked so contrary to victory that even the enemy thought that he had defeated God by nailing Jesus to the cross. But we remember the words of Jesus. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I offer it up freely. And Jesus didn't die on a cross in a sense that his life was snatched from him. Jesus hung on a cross and from that cross he gave up his life to the Father. Jesus was with the Father. He leaves the Father, takes on flesh and blood, leaves the glory of heaven, comes to this earth experiences everything that we experience, tempted in every way that we're tempted, goes to the cross. On the cross, he gives back his life to the Father. It looked like utter and complete defeat, but it was utter and complete victory for us and for Christ, for God. And don't ever, ever forget that. So here's what Here's the language that the Bible uses about Christ. Now, who is this Christ? This Christ who came from God is a natural expression pointing us back to the spiritual reality that has eternally existed. This is what John 1, 1 through 5 talks about. I don't have time to read it, but you should note it. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And so now Christ is filling all in all, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 23. And he, he, he affirms it again in Ephesians 4.10. Any person that has not been filled with the life of Christ is subject to darkness. When Christ fills a person, darkness is dispelled. To the measure our minds have been renewed to the truth that is in Christ, we manifest that measure of Christ. Do you hear that? To the measure that our mind has been renewed... To Christ is the measure that we reflect Christ. And so what needs to happen? We need to have our minds renewed to Christ so that we manifest a greater and greater measure of Christ. So it's not time or position, but it's the measure of Christ that is manifest in a person that determines their spiritual maturity. We gauge my little grandkids, we say as they get bigger... And as they can do more things, they're maturing. Well, it's not just that they're getting bigger and more physically able. There's also a maturing in their heart and their mind, right? In their soul. So they, they don't act like children in the same way when they're 14 that they did when they were 4, 
right? This is Paul's point in Ephesians or in the First Corinthians thirteen. When I was I want, I put away childish things. When I became a man, I put away childish things. So this is process of maturity. What determines our maturity? It's not just time. It's not anything. It's 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 the measure of Christ that's revealed in our life. That's manifest through our life. So as Christ is revealed to you, this is why Paul says, you once were darkness, but now you are children of light in the Lord. Walk, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so Abram comes to Melchizedek here. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. And let's look at Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews gives us a little bit more detail about Melchizedek. That's important for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of, most, of, of the Most High God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. So he brings out bread and wine. And then it says that he is, in Genesis, says that he is the king of, the king of Salem, that word Salem means peace. So here in Hebrews it says that he is a king, king of Salem. He's a priest, the priest of God most high. He meets Abraham returning. Abraham gives a tenth to who? The king of righteousness. So he's, he's called the king of peace, but he's also called the king of righteousness. And then also the king of Salem, meaning king of peace. It says in verse 3 of Hebrews 7, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, without neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like, doesn't say he was, it says he was made like the Son of God. Who made him like the Son of God? Who, who remains a priest continuously? Well, who made him like a Son of God? Well, God did. How did he do that? He hid his genealogy. He hid his birth origin. He hid the identity of his mother and his father. It wasn't that Melchizedek wasn't a real man. It's that God ordained Melchizedek to be a picture of Christ. And so here is a natural expression, a real man who is a natural expression of something, of a substance. Remember, we talk about the shadow. God here is painting with shadows with the substance in view. So God creates Melchizedek, makes him the priest of God Most High. He's the shadow. Christ is the substance. Who is Christ? We come to the table every week and we eat bread and we drink a cup. Christ is our bread and our wine. He is a king and a priest in one man. He is the king of righteousness. He is also the king of peace. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. That's true for Christ in reality. Christ doesn't just have a hidden genealogy like Melchizedek did. No, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning and He has no end. He is made like the Son of God, speaking of Melchizedek. Jesus is the Son of God. He remains a priest continually. And this is the point in Hebrews. 
This is not just about men. This is about Christ. So Abram gave a tithe of all. Verse 20. So before there was a law requiring the tithe, there was a God worthy of the tithe and much more. Do you hear me, church? And we don't give a tithe to men. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek because Abraham was giving his tithe to God. Abraham gave a tithe for the same reason we give our tithe today. Because God is worthy of our worship. Our giving back to God is our acknowledgement of His provision for us in Christ that is far above and beyond what we can think or ask. So the Father has given to us Christ. Christ is the provision that the Father gives to us. You might think that it's a paycheck that's your provision, that your home is your provision. That's all well and good. But the true provision that's been given to you by the Father is not about paychecks and homes and cars and clothes and all of that. The true provision that the Father has given to you is Christ. He's given Himself to you. This is what Abram understood when he came back from the slaughter of the kings. After already having received the promise after knowing that it was God who delivered his enemies into his hand, he understood that God was giving himself to Abram. And what does Abram do? As an acknowledgement, he gives back, not to Melchizedek, he gives back to God. Now, I thought about taking up our tithe after this message today, but then I thought better of it. Because you shouldn't give because you've been manipulated to give or felt guilty to give. And you're not giving to men. Listen, your tithe pays for me to be able to be your full-time pastor. Your tithe helps supplement uh, Caleb's ability to be your worship pastor and do all kinds of other things that I wouldn't even attempt to do. You wouldn't want me to do them. Trust me. 95 plus percent of the people that find us, find us because of our web page. I take no credit for that web page. If you think we have a nice web page and it's updated nice and all that, I had absolutely nothing to do with that other than saying, looks good to me. I I mean, so there's all kinds of things. Yeah, those are real things. There are real needs. Electric bills really need to be paid. Insurance really needs to be paid. All of that, and and your tithe is what we depend on to do that. And if that goes away, then guess what? There won't be an electric bill paid. There won't be any salaries paid. So when, you know, the 86-year-old widow calls me in the middle of the day and has an emergency... Right now, I have the luxury to drop what I'm doing and to go and do what needs to be done. But listen, but that's not why you pay your tithe. You pay your tithe because God is worthy of your worship. And though your tithe enables all of those natural things and natural expressions to take place, because how does God love the 86-year-old widow who has absolutely no family, who cannot drive, 
who, who has no one else to help her, no family that she can call on? Where is the expression of God's love? The expression of God's love is for someone, a human being, to go and do what she cannot do. And that, that's true for the 86-year-old widow. That's true for the 8-month-old baby. It's true for the 21-year-old or the 36-year-old. It's true. This is how the love of God is manifest among us, with us, shared and imparted to and from one another. Who makes that possible? God makes that possible. Because God is love. Who has conquered your enemies? You haven't. God has. Forget what the news media is telling you. God has conquered your enemies. They have no power over you. I don't care if they can cut your head off or not. They have no power over you. If you are in Christ, you have got to come to believe that. You have got to come to stake your very life on that. If you don't, you'll be just like the people in Hebrews who are subject to the fear of death. Don't be subject to the fear of death. Death has no power over you. Why? Not because you've overcome your enemies, but because Christ has overcome your enemies. He has delivered them into your hands. When you pay your tithe, when you give of yourself, it is not just your tithe. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. Well, let me just give you the reference and, and then you go read them. Mark 12, 41 through 44. Mark 12, 41 through 44. This is the picture. This is when Jesus is sitting at the treasury in the temple and everyone's coming and they're dropping their money into the offering plate and here comes a little widow and she drops what's equivalent to like a penny in our money today. A very, very small amount of money. And Jesus stops and he said, all of these people, they've given out of their abundance, but she has given sacrificially out of her poverty. She has given her entire, Matthew says, her whole livelihood. Now, some people today would say, boy, that rotten Jesus, he shouldn't take that widow's last bit of money. But you know what? Jesus, Jesus took it. You know why he took it? Because Jesus was not going to rob her of her worship of God. Because Jesus understood the principle of giving. He understood exactly what she was doing. She was worshiping God, whereas these other people were giving out of their abundance, not as an act of worship, just who knows why. Your giving, not only of your money, your possessions, your giving of your time, your giving of what God requires now is not a tenth. That's what tithe means. When we go to the New Testament, when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler, he says, go sell all that you have and come and follow me. And it says he went away sad because he had, many great, he, he had great possessions. It's not a principle. It's not that Jesus was a communist. <laughs> it's not that everybody's got to give all their money away and sell all their possessions and become uh, paupers. That's not it. That's not the point. Here was Jesus' point to the rich young ruler. Are you willing to give everything to come and follow me? And this is what Jesus asks each and every one of us. 
He's asking you right now, are you willing to give everything to come and follow me? And if the answer to that question is not yes, then there's some idolatry God needs to work out of our life. Let your pastor just go ahead and confess his sin to you right now. If Jesus said, Jeff Ripple, I want you to liquidate everything you have, sell it all, and, and, and I'll, then I'll tell you, give you more instruction after that. That's what he did with Abraham. I'm just going to confess to you right now, you better be praying for your pastor because I, I would have a hard time doing that. But you know what that tells me about myself? I've got some idolatry in my life that I need to work on. I, I, I've conquered tithing. Some of you haven't even conquered tithing yet. I conquered that a long time ago. And, and I realized, when my argument was I can't afford to tithe, I realized the reality is I can't afford not to. Now, I, I didn't come to that because I figured it all out here. I'm telling you, God just gave me a revelation, and I just came to understand. Not that it made sense in the natural, because financially, I, trust me, when I came to that point in time, when I came to that crossroad, it did not make sense financially for me to tithe. Because I couldn't see where in the world an extra 10% was going to come from. But see, I, I just thought wrong. Because it wasn't about finding an extra 10%. The 10% was already there. It already belonged to God. My problem wasn't finding an extra. My problem was I was not giving to God what was rightly His. Because I had a wrong attitude and I had a wrong understanding. Because what I was really saying and didn't know what I was saying is, God, you're not worth it, and you're not worthy. Now, I know none of you say that. That's not what the thought process in your mind, but I'm just telling you, this is, this is the reality. This is why Abram wouldn't take anything from the king of Sodom, not because it was polluted or perverted. He wouldn't take it from the king of Sodom because he was not going to say, any man has made me rich. He knew who his provider was. He knew had, who had given himself. He knew who had delivered his enemies into his hand. He knew who the promise came from. It came from God. And if God couldn't keep the promise, then he was not going to become dependent upon a man. So Abraham gave a tithe of all. We don't give to men, we give to God. Abram paid a tithe not because God needed it, but because Abram needed it. Abram needed to acknowledge God before man. We need to acknowledge God before men. Abram had to pay a tithe not because God forced him or threatened him, but because God loved him. And Abram had a revelation of that love. Abram didn't go up to heaven to pay his tithe. Abram paid his tithe to God through a king and a priest named Melchizedek. When you pay your tithe to Christ Fellowship Church, you're giving to God as an act of worship, as an indication that a measure of Christ is being revealed in you and through you as a witness. You don't give your tithe or your offerings because God is in need of them, but because you are in need of acknowledging God you need to acknowledge your God to give your life, to make known and to return to God a measure of Christ as a witness of His extravagant 
gift of grace freely given to you. You give to God the same way your hand gives to your head in every other part of your body. The parts of your body give back from what was given, each part sharing what the other needs so that the entire body can function as a witness to God's glory in the measure of Christ. You tithe, your tithe enables the witness of the measure of Christ revealed in you to be seen. Your tithe reveals your heart of worship. Do not hide your light. Do not hold back in the face of a God that has so freely given. You may ask like I did, how can I afford to tithe? And I say, how can you afford not to? We are to worship Him with our whole life, with our whole being. Not just our livelihood, but our whole life. Very politically incorrect to talk about money in church these days. But here's the problem with the church these days. We're more worried about being politically correct than we are about preaching the truth. And I've said this before many times, and I'll say it again at the close of this message. The Bible is very clear that one day I will stand and I will give an account to God for the way I shepherd you, the way I pastor you, the way I preach and teach the Word of God that's been entrusted to me as a pastor and a teacher and an elder in the church of God. So, I want to be able to, I've got my own things I have to deal with, right? I, remember, I'm still dealing with idolatry, okay? I'm not ready to lay all my possessions down. So, I've got my own issues I'm dealing with, so I'm not going to pile on top of that, being afraid to tell you the truth, because you might get offended. Because the truth is the only thing that will set you free. And what we need, church, what each and every one of us in this room need today, what we need all across our land and all across the world. Before anybody else, we need the people of God to get a revelation of their God. Not just the people that are lost out there, but I'm talking about God's people. The problem is God's people don't even have a revelation of who God is. And the only way we're going to get that is to go back to the very thing God gave us to begin with. We trust in this word and the author, the God who inspired this word. We trust in this. We preach this. We teach this. We let the chips fall where this book says they're going to fall. And we either trust it or we don't. And when we find ourselves having a difficult time trusting that, listen, we fall down in humility and we cry out to God and we ask for His grace. Because in the end, His grace is all that we have. That's it. And the grace of God was revealed to us most clearly in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Let's all stand. So when we talk about giving, we're not just talking about giving your money. What God wants is your life. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer.
Are you ready? Father in heaven, grant us the grace to be courageous in giving our lives and our livelihood as a witness to the measure of Christ revealed in each of us. Lord, do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. Now I charge you to go in faith, trusting in this, that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Don't go in fear, go in faith, church.